Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Father, we are grateful once again for the time to gather together to study your scriptures and your word. We have the great men who have gone before us, who have paved the way, Father, who set in stone many of the doctrines that we, we hold dear, that we hold to be true, uh, coming from your, your hand. So we ask you to give us a help today to understand, to appreciate uh, the men that we read about and that we learn and the great doctrines that they defended and promoted, Father, and how blessed we are uh, for the work that they've done. But we ultimately thank you, Father, for the same spirit that dwells in us, dwells in him have the same faith, the same Lord, the same Savior, and, and love Him with, with all of our hearts. So we pray, give us understanding, give us help as we look at these uh, things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, this is a lesson on the Trinity. Did we ever get that up, Justin? The... I'm, I'm still... Okay, it, it's no big deal. If it doesn't happen, it's time to get okay. on. I was going to just do a little bit of review what we looked at last week, but uh, it's not necessary. Um, we just looked at the basics of... Uh, what we mean by the Trinity. Um, and the idea of the Trinity that comes to us today that we believe it is represented by Scripture is that God is one in essence. There's one uh, character of God, one substance of God. When you, If you were here during Justin's uh, teaching of the attributes of God, um, what you studied was the essence of God. He, his goodness, His love, His mercy, His sovereignty, all of those represent the, the substance of what God is made of, the stuff that He is. And then when we look at the scriptures, we find that it's not just one. There's more to God than just that one substance. And the way the church looked at this, when they, they read that there was the God the Father who was the creator, they understood only God could create, no other being can create, angels aren't involved in creation in any way, but yet there was another one who created. There was Christ who was created. Who created? Uh, there's also times where the Spirit is mentioned as the one who created. Uh, there's times where the Son is said to have the power to raise the dead, the power to give and take life. Yet we see Paul in Romans ascribing that same power to the Spirit. Uh, so these works that only God does seem to be shared with these other two entities, the, the Son or Christ and the Spirit. Uh, if we look at attributes of God only God possess, we not only see the Father possessing these attributes, but we see uh, the Son having these attributes as well. Uh, we see the Spirit being called the eternal Spirit. We see that the, the Spirit, as sort of con not conflicting, but a little bit different from the Old Testament, is an actual person. He can be grieved. Uh, he, he can... Um, he seems to speak uh, through, uh, through men in the Old Testament, uh, things of a person that a person would do. And so the church came to understand that, yes, there is a, a distinction, there's a unity in God, and that he is one, but there are three things, we'll call them now, that share this unity. And what we learned was what the church called these things. I just don't have a little clicker. Okay. Yeah, go... Uh, yeah, so, so here's what we looked at last week. This is the, the in, this divine and infinite being. We're looking at the London Baptist Confession. It starts off 
by explaining the attributes of God. It explains the prerogatives of God, uh, what makes him God. And then it goes into explaining that this being that we're looking at, that we've studied, we've seen in these first two paragraphs, it's this one being right here with these divine attributes. And it's just a summary. Uh, most people combine or separate it into incommunicable and communicable. Uh, some people have maybe 50, some people have 20. That There's differences in the number of attributes, but they're pretty much saying the same, that there's one essence or substance of God. But then as we go forward, Justin, to, I believe, two more, one more. Again, we see that there are, are three divisions of this nature, uh, and what the early church called these were hypostasis, different uh, substances. And it go for one more. And then later, when the Latins came along, they changed this word to subsistence. It's a Latin word meaning nature. So there are, are three, one infinite being, yet there are three subsistences, three things that seem to share this one divine nature. And now we've seen the Greek term and the Latin term, what is a term we normally use to describe these divisions in the Trinity? We use persons, right? Go ahead to the next one. Okay. So this, this is how we define it today. There are three uh, distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's pretty much the doctrine of the Trinity that we have today. But if you go back to the early church, they, they didn't quite explain it like this. They didn't have a, a clear definition of what the Trinity actually was. And what we're going to do today is, is to look at that early part of the church from the time of the, uh, right after the apostles died, actually even overlapping the apostles' lives, up until maybe the, uh, the second, middle of the second, early third century. What did the church believe about God? What did they believe about the Trinity? Did they actually believe the Trinity? Did they uh, call on God in three persons, blessed Trinity? When did that language come into being? And when we look at the early church, there, there are basically three phases of the development of the Trinity to where we get something actually like this, a little bit more detailed, but something close to this. Uh, the first is what we call the, the, the pre-Nicene Christianity. This is from the death of the apostles uh, to about 130 to 100, or 320 A.D., right before the uh, Nicene Creed was written. That's called the pre-Nicene Creed. Um, normally, this creed is attributed to a man named Athanasius, and that's really not quite true. Athanasius, during the writing of the Nicene Creed, was just a, a, a deacon at his church under the, his pastor, of Alexander of Alexandria. So he really didn't have much to do with the writing of the creed, but after the death of his pastor, he did get promoted to pastor, or bishop actually back then, and he did promote it uh, with a, a, a vengeance, promote the, the actual teachings of the creed. Uh, then we have the Nicene Creed, and once the Nicene Creed was written, a lot of people think, well, the church just automatically accepted it. That, yes, this is what we use to define a trinity. And there was a, a basically two camps. There was those who accepted it and those who rejected it. There was the, the Orthodox and the, the Arians, the uh, um, Heterodox. And actually, not the heretics, actually there was a third party there, a bunch of people that disagreed with it. They weren't Arians, they just didn't think the Nicene Creed was correct. And so it took uh, 20 or so years for that, those two groups to come together into one group. So it wasn't just a big parade, yes, we have a creed. No, a lot of people, even the, the historian Eusebius uh, disagreed. He was a member of that third party who didn't like the confession, but was not an Arian. 
So there's that Nicene period, and then there's the post-Nicene period, which goes from 350 AD, a little bit after the Nicene period, until the Council of Chalcedon, 400 AD, and that's when uh, the Trinity was really solidified. A lot of uh, definitions were given, uh, distinctions made that were uh, very detailed, but the church thought was necessary. It's also known as the, the Cappadocian phase, named after the, the two Cappadocians uh, brothers. So again, three broad phases of the development of the Trinity until we get to something like this. But what I want to do is, we don't have time to get into all this at all, and I only want to do one lesson on a Trinity. And I know there are going to be two groups of people here, those who hate this lesson and those who absolutely love it. That's kind of the way history is. But I think it's encouraging just to read these people's, uh, this early faith and how they embrace the scriptures despite not really understanding a lot about what it said. To me, it's very encouraging to read uh, how these men wrote and what they wrote. So we're going to look at this really uh, two phases of this pre-Nicene uh, period. Now, a, a few words before we start. When you read these men, uh, there's something you have to understand. We talked about this when we looked at canonicity. Remember the, we talked about the great gap between uh, the apostles and those who came right after them. We, there's, when you read the apostles, uh, there's an authority there, there's a power there, there's a, uh, an assumption of, of divine mission that, that is very strong. You know you're reading men who were writing under the hand of God when you read the apostles. But when you get to these men, there's a vast difference. There's, there's, a, a, there's authority there in the sense that they represent the word, but this sense of a divine authority upon them like was on the apostles, it, it's just completely gone. You, you, it's clear that you're reading the words of uninspired men. Now, it's helpful and it's good, but it's a, there's a great chasm between what these men wrote and what the apostles wrote. And I, wrote, I read that quote by Philip Schaaf, remember when he says that there's this great historical chasm that God put between the apostles and the early church fathers so that we wouldn't get it mixed up. We know that this is clearly the apostolic inspired age. This is clearly not. He said God put that division there so the church would know which is which and never mingle the two. So when you read these men, that, that's the sense you get, that these are, are, are good men, but they're, they're by no means are they inspired men like the apostles were. Uh, we see a difference not only between, between them and the apostles, but between them and the reformers. A lot of reformers, uh, people that are reformed, uh, read these men and will often criticize them uh, because they, they tend to project uh, the theological maturity of men like Calvin, Luther, Warfield, and Hodge onto these men. And these men just si simply did not have the theological understanding and maturity that a reformer had. The reformers had 1,500 years of deep theological debate, reflection, and debate development that these men simply don't have. And you know that when you read what they write. There's a big difference. So if you read them and expect to read a, you know, a Calvin or a Luther or something like that, you're going to be disappointed. They're not those men, and they don't sound like those men. And we shouldn't expect them to sound like those men. Also keep in mind that the, the disadvantages that these men ministered under. Uh, first of all, they didn't have a completed canon of scripture. They had the, the Old Testament, which was a Greek version of the Hebrew uh, called the Septuagint. And uh, the Septuagint was, 
if you compare the Septuagint translation to modern translations, uh, you know, people that rail against the New American Standard or the ESV uh, have no idea what a bad translation is. And Septuagint, by our standards today, was considered a bad translation. And if you go later than that to the Old Latin translation, it, it's far worse than the uh, Septuagint. So they had a, a translation that was adequate and it was used by the apostles. But as far as it being accurate like we consider accuracy today, it simply wasn't. Uh, they didn't have a, a New Testament, a complete New Testament. Uh, they may have had a, a handful of books of the New Testament, but most of them didn't have a complete New Testament. It, there may have been parts they missed. Uh, they may have only had what they could simply write down from that another man gave them. Books were expensive. Uh, you just couldn't go out and buy a large uh, manuscript that weighed five or six pounds, which the writings of Paul would have weighed. Uh, so you have little pieces of it, if you had anything at all, or what you could memorize from what somebody had said or somebody uh, wrote. So again, they don't even have a Bible like we have today, not, not even close. Um, secondly, these men didn't have the leisure of study. It was a persecuted church. It uh, doesn't make good circumstances for uh, sitting around contemplating and doing theology. They had to run. Uh, when they had scriptures, many times those scriptures were taken from them and, and burned. Uh, they were persecuted. They suffered greatly. And again, doesn't make a uh, situation good for a contemplative ministry. Uh, there were men who were often on a run. Um, also, we mentioned this, they didn't have the benefit of 1,500 years of theological tradition uh, to inform them like we do today. Now, we, we all understand that tradition is fallible. We don't put our faith through tradition, but we do rely on it quite a bit. Most of you never sat down and through your own personal study from a blank slate came up with the doctrine of the Trinity. You were informed probably by a pastor who taught it, who was informed by somebody else who taught it. And so there's a succession that we have of teaching that informs us what we believe. Now that's legitimate, that's good, and, and it helps us, but these men simply didn't have that. Uh, they had to come up with what they had pretty much on their own, just by their own personal. So imagine uh, Justin doing his study of Revelation with no commentaries. None what's meant to hard at me, Justin. Yeah, these men were in that situation. Uh, that, that discipline was not there. Um, Yet the Spirit taught previous generations, and it's hard to estimate how much benefit we get from looking back upon what the church taught. All the councils, the debates, the writings, the preaching, uh, the theology, uh, they did not have that benefit to inform them. One, one writer says this, he says, they represent a pre-reflective, pre-theological phase of Christian belief. They were not theologians as we think of them today. This in no way, however, diminishes their interest and importance. So yes, they weren't Theological, they weren't great reflectors or deep thinkers. They were pastors, basically. But yet, as this man says, uh, it doesn't diminish their importance. These men were important men. They were great men. They were godly men, and they left their mark on the church even today. Now, on a personal note, I, I love reading these guys. I, I probably once a year, I'll go through a, a, a portion of the early church fathers, all the way up till uh, Justin Martyr or Irenaeus. And uh, I, I just love the, their almost childlike faith that they have and how they illustrate it. One of my favorite examples is uh, Justin Martyr. We'll see a little, little bit about him today. But he was a, a man who wanted to, to take the, the faith and explain it in a way or prove it to the pagans and the Jews around him. And... Um, one thing he tried to do was to show that the cross was everywhere. The cross, I mean, God's whole world is filled with crosses. 
And that should inform us of the importance of Christ being crucified, of Christ dying on a cross. And to show this, he says, look, you know, you want to go somewhere. You want to go across the ocean. What do you use? Well, you get on a boat. Well, what does a boat have? It has a sail. Well, what is a sail? It's a, a mast and a yard arm. That, that's a cross. Uh, you want to dig a hole. You know, what do you use? Well, a shovel. Hold a shovel up. What does it look like? Well, there's a stick and a cross on it. You want to plow a field. What do you do? Well, you go this way up and down a field and that way across the field. What are you doing? You're making crosses. Uh, look at your body. You know, you stretch your hands out. What is that? That's a cross. Look at your face. You've got the nose and the eyebrows. It's, it's, it's a cross. It's as plain as the nose on your face. Crosses are everywhere. Therefore, we need to pay attention to the cross and look to Christ for salvation who died on a cross. Now, to us, that, that's kind of silly, right? We'd never reason that way. But at that time, it was a very powerful way of argumentation. Another one of my favorites is uh, kind of off track here, is uh, when um, Jerome wanted to translate the Vulgate, uh, the, the Latin version um, of the scriptures. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on him to use the Septuagint as the basis of that translation. And Jerome had been secretly learning Hebrew from rabbis. Back then, you didn't associate with rabbis. You had to hide and go meet with them secretly and pay them lots of money to learn Hebrew. And he did learn Hebrew and went back and decided to translate the Vulgate from the original Hebrew and not the Septuagint. And there was a, this big uproar in the church screaming at him not to do that, to use the Vulgate. And one of the loudest voices was Augustine. And his argumentation was this. Keep in mind the way the Septuagint came about was that it was translated in Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt, by a bunch of rabbis and uh, then brought to Israel. To, to spread throughout the world from there. And Augustine says, look, look Jerome, here's, here's the proof, okay? When God wanted to protect Jesus, what did he do? He brought him down to Egypt, right? That's where he was protected. Well, when God wanted to protect our Bible, what did he do? He brought it down to Egypt and brought it back again. What, what proof do you need that the Septuagint is God's word? Now, we wouldn't take an argument like that seriously, but Augustine and his followers did. It was a very uh, analogy was a very powerful argument. And it's easy for us to, to kind of laugh at them and to mock them, but that there is sort of a, a, a theological snobbery that we have, or chronological snobbery, where we think, well, everybody has to think just like us. And if they don't, then you know, we just toss everything they say out. We, we can't do that with these men. There's great benefit there uh, to us personally, to the church, if we listen to them and realize the Spirit of God was in them speaking to us as he's spoken to many generations. Um, now, this pre nicene period, any questions before we dive in? No? Yes? Um, what was the date on the, um, the knife that they used? Yeah, Nicene Creed was finished in, I think, 325. So up till about that point would be the pre nicene And then the, uh, actually, Nicene only lasted for a little while until the church you know, came together. It took a while for it to happen, but it happened in different phases. But I just want to point out that the Nicene uh, Creed wasn't just hailed as, you know, God's truth by all the church. The Arians rejected, obviously, but even within the true church, there were divisions about what they thought about the Nicene Creed. Friendly divisions, but divisions. Now, in the pre-Nicene area, time is divided into three areas, uh, the Apostolic Fathers, the Apologists, and the Alexandrians. And we're going to leave out the Alexandrians. It gets kind of complicated when 
I mean, by the way, origin gets thrown in there, but the first two, I think, will give us a sense of what these men believed and, and how they understood God at this very, very early, almost infantile age. Now, the first of these apostolic fathers is a man by the name of Clement. And notice how close these guys are to the apostles. Clement wrote in 95 AD, which meant apostles were probably living when this man wrote his uh, book. Uh, his writing uh, is one of the most important due to its proximity to the lives of the apostles. Now, he does not call Jesus or the Holy Spirit God, but he does use them in a triadic formula. I, I'm not sure if we did this last week, but one of the evidences for the Trinity is that they're used in triadic formulas, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the baptism. And there's four or five of these throughout Scripture. And what they're doing is they're, they're showing that all the members of the Trinity are, in a sense, equal because we're not baptized just in the name of the Father. Uh, we're not baptized into the name of a creature or an impersonal force. We're baptized in the name of our God, as he's represented by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to the early church, it was a very powerful sign that all three of these uh, beings, whatever you want to call them, were equal in some way. Uh, if they're equal to the Father, then they were all equally God. And again, these formulas are used throughout the New Testament, and they were used by these early church fathers as well. Not just a, you know, a lifting the ones out of the Bible and using them. They actually made their own. They had oaths that they took that, were, that used this triadic formula. They used it in baptism. They used it in, in liturgy, made up their own. Uh, in some of these things, they attributed all of creation to all three members. They attributed salvation in some way. We saw one of those, I think, last week in the New Testament, where each member of the Trinity is given a role in salvation in this triadic formula. They, they did the very same thing. Uh, he sees... Uh, Christ as the Father's child, the scepter of the Father's greatness. He calls him Lord. He calls him God's servant. He says that he is above angels. His majesty is divine, and he has the splendor of the only begotten of God. He says this, This is the way, dearly beloved, wherein we found our salvation, even Jesus Christ, the high priest of our offerings, the guardian and helper of our weakness. Through him let us look steadfastly into the heights of the heavens. Through him we behold, as in a mirror, his faultless and most excellent visage. Through him the eyes of our hearts were opened. Through him our foolish and darkened mind springeth up into the light. Through him the master will that we should taste of the immortal knowledge, who being the brightness of his majesty is so much greater than angels, he hath inherited a more excellent name than they. Now he's not calling him God. But he's speaking very highly of him as if he actually were God. And that last phrase there, uh, who is the brightness of his majesty, is so much greater than the angels, he hath inherited a more excellent name. What does that sound like to you? Hebrews, exactly. First chapter of Hebrews. That's the first three or four verses. He's summarizing a couple chapters. He was there. Hebrews 1 is probably the greatest uh, definition or proof of Christ's deity that there is to me. It's better than John 1, 1 even. Uh, because it just shows that he's the exact representation of his nature. It says he uh, rolled out the heavens and he'll roll them up again. And the angels fall down and worship him. Again, he doesn't call him God here, but he speaks of Christ as being unique, as being the source of our salvation, the source of immortal knowledge, and the brightness of God's majesty. Um, 
He uses the triadic formula where he describes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as the source of hope and our salvation. He says this, Receive our counsel as ye shall no occasion of regret. For God liveth, and the Lord Jesus Christ liveth, and the Holy Spirit who are the faith and the hope of the elect. So all three of these, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are the faith and the hope of the elect. Not just the Father, but the Son and the Spirit as well are the objects of our faith and the source of our hope. He swears by all three of these as if God, they were each God themselves. Um, he uses an another triadic form of these words. Have we not one God and one Christ and one spirit of grace that was shed upon us? And is there not one calling in, not one calling in Christ? And here he's calling for unity. Um, and he said, uses the idea of the Trinity being united as the basis for their unity. So from Clement, we do not see a direct reference to Christ or the Holy Spirit as God. But there is a very um, there's a very close relation between them and the Father, so much so that their name can be uh, put together in oaths, uh, and their unity can be seen as a pattern for the church's unity. Uh, one man says this: "There's no, there is obviously no doctrine of the Trinity or an explicit affirmation of the divinity of the Son and the Spirit, but only the echo of the data contained in the Scriptures." That's a good description. There's an echo of what the scripture says about God in these words. And many times what they're doing is they're just quoting or paraphrasing what the scripture says with no embarrassment, no theological reflection. It says it, just listen to what it says. So there's this echo of the scriptures and its reference to Christ's deity in these men's writing. Uh, the next is uh, Ignatius of Antioch. He lived from 900 or 90. He wrote actually from 90 to 117 A.D. So probably a couple apostles around maybe when he was writing. If not, there were definitely men who knew the apostles who were still living at this time. Um, and he actually refers to Christ as God 14 times in his writings. He says, I pray for your happiness forever in our God, Jesus Christ, by whom, by, by whom continue ye in the unity and under the protection of God. So actually calling Christ God. We have also a physician, the Lord our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son, the Word, before time began, who afterwards became also man of Mary the Virgin, for the Word was made flesh. Being incorporeal, he was in body, being impassable. He was a, impassable, a body, being immortal. He was in a mortal body, being life, he became subject to corruption, that he might free our souls from death and corruption and heal them, and might restore them to death, that when they were diseased with ungodliness and wicked lust. So here he calls Christ our God, Jesus Christ. Direct reference to Christ being God. He says, I glorify God, even Jesus Christ, who has given you such wisdom, for I have observed that you are perfected in an immovable faith, as if you were nailed to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he says, I glorify God, even Jesus Christ, calling Christ himself God. He does not call the Spirit God, but he does use him again in these triadic formulas throughout his writings. His study, therefore, to be established in the doctrines of the Lord and the apostles, so that all things whatsoever ye do may prosper both in the flesh and spirit, in faith and love, in the Son and in the Father and in the Holy Spirit. 
Another tragic formula, he says, For his power, Jesus Christ will deliver you, who has founded you upon the rock, as being chosen stones, well fitted for the divine edifice of the Father, who is raised up, who's raised up on high by Christ, who is crucified for you, making use of the Holy Spirit as a rope, and being borne up by faith. So here the, the Spirit, I love this, is a rope. The, some of the translations use the word crane. The Holy Spirit's a crane that, that lifts you up, that raises you up out of the grave. Here, uh, attributing uh, resurrection power to the Holy Spirit. As being born up by faith while exalted by love from earth to heaven, walking in company with those that are undefiled. Again, describing the work of salvation being a trying effort. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all are involved in some way, in an essential way, in this work. So in Ignatius, we see a development in the doctrine of the Trinity. We see Christ called God directly 14 times, and his writings uh, fill maybe 15 small pages. He didn't write big volumes here. Just, these are letters to churches. So in about 15 pages of one letter, he calls Christ God over 14 times. Uh, and doesn't call the Spirit God, but he is a person, and he works with the Father and the Son in salvation, as can be seen in his triadic formulas. Uh, keep it again. The small number of writings is very significant here. Um, uh, we can examine other writings of other men at this time, such as Hermes, uh, the Didache, Polycarp, Barnabas. Uh, but what we would find is this: that they all worship the Father. Uh, they all use the triadic formulas. Uh, most of them called Christ uh, God, Lord and God. Only one that really didn't is Clement, but the rest of them did in various places. In short, they do not say anything that can contradict uh, the latter doctrine of the Trinity. They may have made statements that would raise some eyebrows if uh, just were to make them a Sunday morning or if we were to, to, to say them in a a theological conference, uh, but their language was not bounded by the orthodoxy that we have in our creeds. When we speak about the Trinity, uh, uh, unconsciously our language is bound by what the creeds say, and we don't go beyond that. Now, some people will, they're not careful, but that normally is, is what binds us uh, in the way we speak about the unity and the plurality of God, and whether you are conscious of it or not, it, it does. Uh, these men didn't have that. So they, they spoke in ways that we would probably, you know, scratch our head or maybe raise an eyebrow. I'm not calling them outright heretics, but just think, you know, well, they're not being very careful in the way that they speak about the Trinity. So, again, they, they were completely orthodox in their teaching and their promotion of who and what God was with regard to the Trinity. Any questions about the apostolic fathers before you go on? Okay, yeah, if you ever have a chance to read them, they're, they're, find a good translation. Don't uh, you know, read a 150-year-old translation. Try to get a better translation. But they're very, very, very beneficial, very helpful to read, at least personally for me. Now, the apologists, these were men who wrote from the middle to the latter part of the second century. Uh, who were they? Well, their names would indicate they were interested in defending and vindicating Christianity to the pagans and Jews around them. Uh, the church fathers, apostolic fathers, all that we have are letters that they wrote to the churches. No books, just letters to various churches. Uh, these men didn't write letters, but they wrote apologies. They wrote dialogues, uh, books that were uh, given to pagans, uh, to the Jews. Uh, even the emperor uh, had books devoted, whether they read them or not is another thing, but they wrote addressing books to the emperor. Uh, 
again, to the pagan religions and Judaism. That they're trying to show the superiority of Christianity to the pagan religions and to Judaism. Uh, they were far more reflective in their thinking than the, than the apostolic fathers. These men had sat down and thought deeply about what they were thinking and how to defend the faith and explain it, uh, not to other people in, in churches, but how to explain it to those who may have never heard the name of Christ, never heard of uh, Christianity, who were uh, still entrenched in their uh, Judaism, uh, the, the idea of God being a monoid, where there's only one God and can't be a separation or distinction among the gods. He wrote a letter to uh, a Jew by the name of Trifo to dialogue and debate that he had with his Jew. And a lot of it centers around demonstrating that Christ is indeed God and that the Spirit as well. The first of these, we, we all probably know and heard of him before, is Justin Mark, um, and I referred to earlier. He says this, I shall give you another testimony, my friends, from the scriptures, that God be God before all creatures, a beginning, who was a certain rational power proceeding from himself, who was called by the Holy Spirit, now the Lord of glory, now the Son, again wisdom, again an angel, then God and the Lord and Logos. And in another occasion, he calls himself captain when he appeared in human form to Joshua, the son of uh, Nun. Now here, it's kind of wordy, but he's basically saying that, that uh, this son, was before all creatures. He had no beginning. Uh, that he was the Lord of glory. He had all power, all wisdom. Uh, and he basically calls him God. And if you look at the reference that he's making to Joshua, where, where this man appeared to Joshua who called himself captain, in Joshua that's clearly the Lord, clearly Jehovah. And so Justin Martyr is saying that one there is this person, Jesus Christ. In his dialogue with Trifo, he says this, Therefore these words testify explicitly that he is witnessed to by him who established all things and deserving to be worshipped as God and as the Messiah. So here he says that Christ is to be worshipped, not in some lesser way, but to be worshipped as God and as Christ or as the Messiah. Justin also makes reference to the, the plural pronouns in Genesis. Remember, we, we talked about this last week and looking at the, the Trinity in the Old Testament. It, it's, it, it's not clearly there, but there's nothing to contradict the Trinity in the Old Testament. And there's little hints that there's more to God than just a unity. And those little hints are pronouns that God uses when speaking about doing things, mainly in Genesis, where he says, let us make man in our own image. This is the image of God. He made them. And then uh, when man sinned, God says he's become like us, knowing good and evil. And so there are little hints in the Old Testament. And the apologists, I mean, really stoked the fires on these pronouns, really loved using these pronouns to show the idea of the Trinity he says to Trifo, again, who is a Jew, um, therefore these words testify explicitly that he is witness to him by him who established these things. I'm sorry, um, I got lost in my notes here. Uh, he says this, Behold, Adam has become one of us. To know good and evil, saying Adam has become one of us, Moses is saying that there are a number of persons associated with one another and that there is at least two. So he looks at the pronoun and says, Well, who is God talking to? And the Jews believed that he was talking to angels. And the apologists and later theologians would say, no, God didn't make man in angels' images. He made him in his image. And when he sinned, he didn't become like angels who are pure or sinful. He became like God who does know good and evil at an intimate level. So again, these, uh, this, these plural pronouns are to him um, 
definite proof that there is a unity within the Godhead. And he was the first to contemplate the unity of the essence of the Father and His Son. Says this power was begotten from the Father by His power and will, but not by obsession, as if the essence of the Father were divided, as all other things partitioned and divided are not the same after as before they were divided. So he's saying it wasn't a, a, a partition where you take a piece of it and separate it out. It, it, it's a, a, a division, and he uses that differently than the partition, take a little piece here, a little piece there, and he uses the illustration of a fire. Uh, I, I took the case of files kindled from fires kindled from a fire, which we see to be distinct from it, yet that from which many can be kindled is by no means made less, but remains the same. So if you take a, a, a fire, uh, you have uh, two piles of wood, and one of them is burning, and you take the fire from the one and light the other one, you've got two fires. You haven't taken a little bit of fire from the one and spread it out. You have two actual fires. And he said that's the essence of, of God. Both the Father and the Son have the same exact essence, and that is what makes them one. A lot, a lot of uh, kind of verbal confusion here, but what he's saying is that the, between the Father and Son, there is one essence that is divided, yet it is divided in such a way that there is no distinction between the two of them. Uh, Justin's view of the Spirit isn't really all that clear. He didn't seem to meditate very much on the Spirit. When he does make reference, when make reference to him, he does seem to see differences between the two. Uh, they're almost identical. It seems sometimes he thinks that the, the Spirit and the Son are almost the same thing, that, that the Spirit is the Son and vice versa. Um, yet he does appear to worship the Spirit. He says, we worship the Creator of the universe with a word and of prayer and thanksgiving, expressing our thanks to him in words, in solemn ceremony and hymns. The Master taught us this worship was born to this end, who was to this end, who was crucified, we are sure he is the son of the true God and hold him second in order to the spirit of prophecy, or hold him second in order, the spirit of prophecy in third place. So in describing this worship, uh, there's an order there. We worship the Father first, then the Son and the Spirit. But they are all to be worshipped in some way. They worship all three, but there's an order in the importance of their worship. And again, Justin speaks, like all his forefathers that came before and after him, uh, of the spirit in the triadic form, was attributing the work of creation to him as well as the work of uh, salvation. So Justin, there's an advancement in the Trinitarian thought uh, that focuses on the same substance between the Father and the Son and even introduces language that would be used in ecumenical creeds. So they took the idea of this, this essence, and it's pretty much what we see back there. That was started, the seeds of that were planted by Justin Martyr himself. Again, some uncomfortable language is often accused of being a subordinationalist, meaning that the, the Son and the Spirit are, are uh, what we call ontologically subordinated to the Father, but again, uh, his language wasn't our language. He didn't have that, that boundaries that we have established through uh, centuries of, of tradition and study and, and creedal statements. Uh, nevertheless, he worshiped God, the Son, and worshiped the Spirit, and used all three in the formalism. Uh, any questions before we go on to Justin? Actually, you know how he was saved? He was walking along a beach one day, and uh, an old man came up to him, a very old, ancient man, and started talking about the Lord, and went through the, all the Old Testament prophecies and showed how they came true. Prophecy of Tyre, you look at, and uh, he heard it and believed it, and was saved that day. So, a very, very interesting man. 
another uh, apologist that's very seldom mentioned, uh, his name is Athenagoras, A-T-H-E-N-A-G-O-R-A-S. And um, he lived about 100 AD, or wrote about 100 AD, and uh, don't have a whole lot of what he said, but he did make some of the most amazing statements about the Trinity, far beyond uh, what other men at this time appear to be saying. He said this, that we affirm that the Father and His Word and His Holy Spirit are of one power. Remember that first line we read in our confession that they, they share the same power? It, it, it can almost be taken right out of this man's mouth. They, they all share the same power, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when you, we said last week, when you give one of the members of the Trinity a, a single attribute, those attributes aren't separated. They, they go together in one substance, one essence. So if one of them has a divine attribute, then they have all of the divine attributes, and they're, they're fully divine. You can't take an angel and give him uh, omnipresence or give him infinite power and have that angel still remain an angel. The, the, the idea they have one attribute encompasses all the attributes. So in saying that, he's saying that they are all of one substance equal. Uh, Again, very, our, what our confession does say is the Father, the Word, and the Son, the Holy Spirit are of one substance, power, and eternity. Uh, Athenagoras says we affirm that the Father and His Word and His Holy Spirit are one in power. Um, he sees the Spirit of the Son and the Father are not just involved in creating, but sustain the universe. He says this, the Holy Spirit Himself also, which operates in the prophets, we assert that assert to be an influence of God flowing from him and returning back again like a beam of the sun. Who then would not be astonished to hear men who speak of God the Father and God the Son and of the Holy Spirit and who declare both their power in union and their distinction in order be called, called atheists. So the idea that um, the, the Spirit goes out from the Father, he says, and this language is used later in some of the later confessions, um, and it returns back again like, like a beam of light goes out from the sun. It goes out and comes back. And, uh, and who would be astonished to hear men who speak of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who declare both their power in union and their distinction in order. So he's saying that they are one together in union, and yet he says there are distinctions between them. So again, very uh, these things were used much more frequently later on in the church, but to have it spoken this early it is really quite amazing, really quite amazing to be the, the distinction as well as the unity. He says this, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And who regards death as a deep sleep and forgetfulness uh, to be accounted pious, while men who reckon the present life very small worth indeed, and he who are and and who are conducted to the future life by this one thing alone, that they know God and His logos, that, that be the word, and who is one witness of the Son and the Father. What the communion of the Father and the Son, what is the Spirit, what is the unity of these three, the Spirit, the Son, the Father, and their distinction in unity. So again, just this distinction there, but yet the unity there. Again, we take it for granted, but to hear that in 180 AD, it's just amazing to hear that kind of language being used back then. One commentator says this, it is impossible not to observe how close Athenagoras comes to the Catholic dogma of the Holy Trinity. Now when we say Catholic, we don't mean Roman Catholic, we just mean the, the universal understanding of the church at this time. 
uh, comes to the Catholic dogma of the Trinity as it is ultimately defined. He sees a plurality of the persons of God is not inconsistent with the idea of monarchy or unity, but complementary to it. There's unity in a divine life, and there is also diversity. Unity consists in the possession of the same divine power, the diversity in a distinction of rank or order. So this is the first man we have on record, uh, again, less than 100 years after the apostle's death, uh, saying that there is both a unity and a diversity in the Godhead. Any questions about uh, this man? Okay. Uh, next one is Irenaeus. What time we have? Uh, he was born in Asia around 130 AD. Uh, he died in 200 AD, about seven years old. And he actually, strangely, he ministered in Lyons, France, in Gaul at the time. And uh, what happened was there was a, uh, a large Greek migration that went from Syria, I don't know why, I've never studied it enough, uh, was, went from Syria to France, of all places. And uh, he went there with them and became their bishop of that city. Uh, spoke Greek his whole life, never uh, spoke French. Went a Greek-speaking man to that community there. And the heresies he battled against were Gnosticism and Monarchianism. Remember, we studied these a while ago, looking at the uh, canon. Uh, what, anybody remember what Gnosticism was? What did Gnostics claim? That they had a secret knowledge of salvation. That of Christ, the, the 40 years that he was uh, between the resurrection and the ascension, that he went around teaching people secretly. Uh, these doctrines of salvation that completely contradicted what the apostles taught or what the gospels taught. And uh, we uh, see these things resurrected once in a while, like the, the gospel of Thomas, they'll discover it and say, oh, look, here's a, a, a gospel that the writers of the New Testament forgot. They should have put this in the Bible. And they're just, they're nonsense. They're, they're, there's garbage. Uh, there's weird things like fairies in them and talking animals. And nothing like the gospels that we have. Uh, th these are Gnostic writings, very strange. So you battle that. And also he battled what is called monarchianism. Remember what that was. The guy who said that there is no, the God of the Old Testament is a corrupt God. We need to reject him. So they, he threw out the Old Testament and then uh, threw out mo most of the New Testament, where the New Testament quotes the Old, which is pretty much all of it. He threw all that out and had a pretty much uh, two or three page New Testament, basically. Uh, so th these are the people that Irenaeus uh, battled against in his book called Against Heresies. Now, analysis of his thought. He sees all three members of the Trinity working together to create the world. He sees the Son and the Spirit being uh, the two hands that God uses to make the world. He said, for God did not stand in need of these angels, again, combating the idea that angels were involved in the creation, uh, in order that, in order to accomplish in order to the accomplishing of what he had himself determined with himself beforehand should be done. If he did not possess his own hands, for with him were always present the word and wisdom, the Son and the Spirit, by whom and in whom freely and spontaneously he made all things, to whom he also speaks, saying, let us make man in our image and likeness, he taking from himself the substance of the creatures and the pattern of things made and the type of all the adornments of the world. So what is he saying here is that the, the Spirit and the Son were both involved in creation. Uh, not angels, but two equals. The Spirit and the Son uh, illustrated or analogized by his hands, his left and right hand. And that when he said, let us make man in our own image, who was he speaking to? Son and the Holy Spirit. They're, they're conversing together as they plan on making man. And man has their image, the very image of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit implanted upon him. 
He sees both the Son and the Spirit as eternal. I have also largely demonstrated that the Word, namely the Son, was always with the Father, and that wisdom also, which is the Spirit, was present with Him and carried to all creation as Solomon says. So here uh, he takes wisdom in the Proverbs as being the Holy Spirit. So he says both of them are eternal. They were with the Father in the beginning. Uh, the Son and the Spirit are also working in salva the salvation of man. So the Spirit prepared human beings for the Son of God, and the Son leads them to the Father, and the Father gives them immortality. Thus God was revealed for all these ways. God the Father is displayed, the Spirit works, the Son fulfills His ministry, the Father approves. So all members of the Trinity are involved in the salvation of mankind, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit, he says, gives life to the believer. Uh, it is by virtue of the Spirit that believers will rise again when the body is united anew in the soul. What's interesting about Arrhenius is that uh, the Gnostics that he wrote against believed that the true God was so exalted uh, and so transcendent that he couldn't actually touch his creation that he had to have these intermediary beings, uh, this succession of angels going in order of rank from the lowest all the way up to the highest. There are literally thousands of these angels going up this scale to actually one who stood before God. So when God wanted to do something, he couldn't get his hands dirty. Uh, he had to use these interme intermediary angels to do it. And it just orders went down the ranks. And uh, this, this was called the uh, pleroma in the, uh, the Greek, by the Greeks who, who spoke this way. And uh, what Irania says is, no, that, that one who God works through is the Son. He works through the Son. There's no progression of beings. God does it directly by the Son. The creation, uh, all of that is taken care of by the Son. In fact, Paul in uh, Colossians is battling a, a very, a doctrine very similar to that. And he says that Christ is the pleroma. He says that the intermediary being between God and man is not a series of angels. It's Christ himself. So don't go looking to these beings to try to go up the scale to get to God. And that's part of their religion was going up these different levels of beings, becoming friends with them, and then going up to the next level to ultimately get to God. And Paul says, no, the access to God comes through Christ. This pleroma is achieved by going to him, and you have direct access to God. Uh, and that's sort of the same idea that Irenaeus uses as well in combating these people. And he, he contracts this idea by saying that the Son and the Spirit are intermediaries between God who does the work in saving mankind. Okay, the, the last man is Tertullian. Any question before we go to Tertullian? Okay, the reason I pause is because I love Tertullian. He's one of my favorite uh, church historians. Um, he's not a pastor, he was a, not a, he was a lawyer actually, so we'll give him a break, uh, being a lawyer and all. Uh, he lived from 160 to 220 AD. Uh, he was the first of these men that actually spoke Latin. Everybody we've looked at so far was a Greek speaker, where our Tertullian was Latin. Uh, lived in North Africa, ministered uh, the same region that Augustine did, uh, the Punic region of Africa, they call it. Uh, his famous Trinitarian writing is called Against Praxius. And Praxius was a modalist. Remember what a modalist is? What does a modalist believe? They believe that there's, there's one God and the different... Uh, what we would call persons are just different manifestations of that same God. It's like looking at something from a different angle. You take this uh, this phone here, okay? Th this would be the spirit. 
that would be the son and that would be the father. It's illustration, I think I used this illustration in a sermon a while ago. When I was a, a, a kid, he used to watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Remember what the, the, the symbol for that was, the rock in Gibraltar. Remember growing up, just seeing that big rock there, big pillar just sticking out of the ground. Think what a wonderful thing that would be to see that. And we moved to Spain when I was a teenager. And where we lived in Spain was maybe two and a half hours from Algeciras, which is the city that is closest to the Rock of Gibraltar. So we're going to go there one day. And I was all excited about seeing the Rock of Gibraltar. And so we got there, and we looked at it, and it was nothing like what I saw in those Prudential ads. Uh, there was this little city at the base of it. It was a big mountain there. You tell something was sticking up out of the ground. But there was a little city at the base of it. And there was a big, green, beautiful slopes going up at these pastures with sheep on them. Uh, there's even monkeys running around on it. Now, the, the last, latter third of it was a big chunk of granite you could see. But I'm thinking, what, did they maybe take an x-ray of it or something like that and, and put that there, strip all the dirt away? And so I just kind of, well, disappointed. And then about a year later, we went to uh, Tangier, Morocco, which is the city directly across from um, Algeciras in Africa. And as we're driving across, we got to the middle of it, and I look back, and there's that picture from Mutual of Omaha. And it was just a different perspective. Same rock, same thing, just a different perspective. Long story, that's what modalism is, basically. Same God, just different perspectives you're seeing him from. So uh, Tertullian fought against this. Now, in fighting against that, what do you think he's going to try to bring out? The unity of God or the distinctions of God? He's going to emphasize the distinctions of God because that's what they deny. There's really no distinction. It's just one God who we see from different angles or different perspectives. Now, one reason I like Tertullian is because he's got a lot of firsts. Um, he, I think we saw this looking at uh, the um, uh, canonicity. He was the first uh, to put the Old and New Testament into one book. So he had one Bible with one book, two books. Uh, he was the first to directly speak about infant baptism. Remember what he said about it? Was he for it or against it? He was against it, yes. And much to the chagrin of many uh, pedo-baptists, he spoke against it. So the first time we have anybody speaking about infant baptism, it's against it, that it's wrong. Um, also, he was the first to use the word trinity and use the word substance as well. And he also advanced the idea of the person being what distinguished the members of the Trinity. Uh, just some quotes. He's, again, he's very kind of wordy since he's a lawyer. Uh, we know how all lawyers are, right? Present company excluded, of course. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. Um, Bear always in mind, this is a rule of faith, which I profess. I testify that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are inseparable from each other. And so you will know that in what sense this is said. Now observe my assertion that the Father is one, the Son is one, the Spirit one, and that they are distinct from each other. That's a pretty profound statement. Pretty much what we saw up here. That they're, they're one together, but they're distinct. They're separate. That if the number of Trinity also offends you as if it were not to connect the simple, uh, in simple unity, I ask you, how is it possible for a being who is absolutely and one and singular, being a, this being a modal is what we're describing here, uh, being to speak in a plural phrase saying, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, whereas he had ought to have said, let me make man in my image after my likeness. So he's speaking directly to the modalists here, saying, if God was a modalist like you say, he would have never said us, he would have said me, unless he's some kind of schizophrenic God who divides himself personally or something like that. No, it's, it's us. 
showing a unity among a diversity. He says this, in the following passage, however, behold, the man has become one of us. He is either deceiving or amusing us in speaking plurally. If he is one and only singular, was it to the angels that he spoke? Again, speaking to the, as the Jews said, uh, as the Jews interpret this passage. Or was it because he is at once the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? It was because he had at this, this close, I'm sorry, it is because he had these close to his side, the Son, as the second person, his own word, and the third person, who is also the Spirit, he purposely adopted the plural phrase, let us make. For whom did he make man? To whom did he make him like? The answer must be the Son, on the one hand, who is, by, who is one day to put on human nature, and his Spirit, on the other, who is to sanctify man. I love this illustration. Why did he say us? Well, because he had the Son on one side of him and the Spirit on the other side of him. And he was speaking to them. They were speaking amongst themselves when they made man in his way. Otherwise, he would have said me if it was just a, a monad God. He says this finally, we worship unity in Trinity tr and Trinity in unity. In other words, unity in plurality, plurality in unity. Uh, neither confounding the person nor dividing the substance. There is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Brilliant statement. Coming a couple hundred years after the death of the Apostle. So people who say, well, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity, it took so long, uh, 400 years, people were kind of scratching their heads saying, who, who was God? Who really was he? Not even close. These men understood. They may not have used the precise language they did, but very rapidly the Lord allowed them to, to, to formulate and to understand and to explain this doctrine in a very, very uh, distinct, very, very profound way. So conclusion before we close. Um, what we see in the early church is not a strict formulated Trinitarian doctrine. They may not have used the precise language of the confessions to describe the unity and plurality. Uh, they did have a number of things in common uh, that were extremely important. First of all, they all recognized the unity of God. They recognized the distinctions within the Godhead and in varying ways tried to describe these distinctions. Uh, only one of these men did not refer specifically to Christ as God. That's the first one, Clement. All others did. They all worshipped Jesus and the Spirit. Even Clement uh, gives indication that he worshipped Jesus and the Spirit in his triadic formulas. They believed all three were in some way uh, involved in the creation and preservation of the universe and in the salvation of mankind. That's all of them believed this. They all used the divine triad. They did not simply uh, repeat it verbatim from Scripture, but they created and adopted their own for uses in worship, liturgy, and various oaths. They also did not deny any of the fundamental doctrines of the Trinity. They may not have spoken as carefully as we would have liked, but they never actually denied it. And this is far different from what you see in, in the latter pre-Nicene time when Athanasius came. Uh, these men would, would say and assert that Christ is not eternal. They would say that Christ was created. He is a created being. Uh, they would say that Christ is not equal to Father, that he is not God. And that type of language is completely absent from anything these men said. Everything they said about him was positive, that it pushed us in the direction of worshiping him and loving him and adoring him as God. Okay, they said nothing remotely like the Arians were saying. 
Now, again, they did say things would be embarrassed to us, maybe raise their eyebrows, uh, but they never took a, a direct stand against any of the fundamental doctrines of the Trinity. Um, we see their writings a, a, a clear Trinitarian path that would bear much fruit in the upcoming centuries as the church hashed out of the doctrine of the Trinity. When you read the, the argumentation uh, that the latter pre-Nicene fathers used, they relied heavily on these men's quotes. They knew what these men said, and, and they pulled that forth into their arguments for the Trinity. Uh, an illustration, I like to illustrate what these men were like, was um, how we should respond to them. A story I read years ago of, uh, it may be popular, I don't know, it may not be completely true, but a, a Korean missionary, uh, he and his family uh, went up a river and just decided to stop here and go witness to these people, a very uh, barbaric tribe. And uh, they got out of the boat, had handfuls of Bibles, and immediately upon setting foot on land, these natives killed, just slaughtered the whole family. And um, nothing was ever heard from them again. And then years later, I think like 50, 60, 70 years later, uh, another missionary came up that same river and stopped at that same place and found that the, the Bibles and the tracts that this man had, uh, these men, Indians had taken up, not Indians, Koreans had taken up, and there was a church there, a very primitive church. Now, if we walked into that church and uh, we asked those people what they thought about the Trinity, you know, if they didn't give us a precise creedal uh, statement, what would we say? Well, we'd certainly give them some slack, wouldn't we? They basically had a Bible and, and read it from scratch with no help, no commentaries, no uh, listening to John MacArthur every morning to hear what he says about it. They just had to figure it out for themselves. And that's how the early church was. Uh, they had to figure a lot of this stuff out on their own. They had apostles, they had teachers, but not nearly what we have today. So, I mean, love them. Uh, Praise them for what they did and, and give them a lot of slack when you read them because they didn't quite think like us. But again, God used them. He's used them many times in my life to encourage me, uh, to kind of humble me uh, when I realize the resources that I have and, and the lack of faith that I often have doesn't come close to what these men had. So again, uh, wonderful teaching, wonderful reading what these men thought and I uh, hope you're encouraged to dig in a little bit or at least appreciate the history that we have. That we're not here on our own. We didn't just pop up like little mushrooms in history. We have people that helped us, that informed us, that taught us, that made us who we are. So again, we stand on the shoulders of many giants, and these men are a group of those shoulders that we stand on. Uh, questions or comments before we move on? Can it bore you too much? I don't, I don't like lessons like this. I know half the people are gonna love it and half aren't, so I'm always a little reluctant to do it, but I decided to go for it. Jeff, what about some modern-day expressions of some of these heresies that have been followed against us? Thinking about the oneness of Pentecostals? Yeah. Can you comment on that group? And do you think they're heretics? Or? Yeah, I mean, if they deny the Trinity, I mean, how, how can they worship the true God if they deny the Trinity? They think the Son was a, cre a creature, that the Spirit is, is just a force. I don't, I mean, I'm not going to say all of them are going to hell but I have a really hard time with people who willingly deny the Trinity. It's who God is. I mean, what if you said God was an orange? Would, would that, if you were faithful to that, would that save it? And to me, somebody who says God is not a Trinity is really, I mean, grossly distorting who God is. It, it, being a Trinitarian is so essential to the faith and to the church that I just don't see how people can, can deny that. You just to say God is a, a tree. As far as I'm concerned, you make an idol out to be God. 
And, and you, you, what, what you do when you're doing that is that you're, you know, when you argue against people like that, and um, Jehovah's Witnesses and all people that, that deny the Trinity, and, and you push them with scripture, uh, it always goes down to, well, it just doesn't make sense. It's irrational. Uh, God can't be three in one. There's some limit that reason is putting upon their faith to embrace the Trinity. And uh, that's every discussion I've ever had with a, a non-Trinitarian, that's pretty much what it boils down to. You press them, well, I just don't believe that God can ever be that way. And, and so I, I just uh, I have a hard time. I'm not going to say all of them are, but uh, it, it's hard for me to see how you can deny that fundamental teaching about God, his person, who he is, and, and have a, a, a grip on salvation. The fellow that's down at uh, maybe the young bishop or somebody that's down by BBU has a big church at mm -hmm. TD Jakes? Oh yeah, he's not even close. I mean, if all he did was deny the Trinity, that'd be enough. But he's he's a I don't even want to say what he is. I'm a company. He's a complete freak. I would even if he did believe in the Trinity, I would not say that man is saved. I mean, have you ever listened to him? I mean, he's just he has no gospel whatsoever, not at all. Now, I've seen him witness to the prisoners, and uh, he's given a sermon, and um, you know they're, they're behind a glass or in, in a room with a camera, and uh, it's just this motivational sermon where he's whipping people up. You know, you, you can do it, you can make it in this life. And so you got these prisoners sitting there in, in their orange uniforms, jumping out of their seats, pumping their fists in the air, and, and, and punching at Satan. That's what he got them to do. They had to punch Satan, they punch Satan. And so instead of giving them the gospel. He's got these men punching the air. It's saying, I mean, how can, okay, let's say he holds an orthodox doctor of the Trinity. Doesn't mean anything if he's preaching the gospel that way. Doesn't mean a thing. And I've known people to go to those churches. I, I worked at a, a, a downtown Dallas, and it was a, a government job where there are a lot of African Americans working. And there were four or five people that, that were a part of that church. And I mean, there was not a godly bone in their body. I mean, they were just as pagan. It's not, not because of their, their color, just they get nothing at that church, nothing at all. So yeah, I, I'd have a hard time, even if he wasn't the one that's Pentecostal, attributing anything good to DJs. They just watch him or read him. Anything else? But a good modern ones are Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're, they all deny the Trinity. One of the marks of a cult is they all deny the Trinity. All of them. Anything else? Okay, well, I hear something. Okay, well, thanks for your attention. I'm glad you uh, enjoyed it, and I hope you did. We hope you'll be encouraged and blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the men who went before. We're thankful for the faith they had. We're thankful for the same spirit that is in them, Father, is in us, and can encourage us uh, to do those very same works. And we thank you for the Trinity, Father. We pray you'd help us to, to adore the fact that you are a Trinity, to make it the center of our faith, to make us to think, how can we ever worship a God who is not a Trinity, who is not Father, Son, and Spirit, all-powerful, all-wise, all-gracious, all-compassionate, Father, eternal in every way, uh, Father, Son, and the Spirit. What a delight it is that you've revealed yourself to us in this way, and that we've embraced this truth. Let us delight in it, and delight in you, Father. And Christ we pray. Amen.